0: Kill the rat. Kill the rat. Hello
1: everyone and welcome to Curiosity Killed the Rat. My name is Matt. I'm a science enthusiast and I'm speaking on lands um, whose traditional custodians are the Noongar people. Um, and I'm joined I'm always joined, except for that one time when I wasn't joined. You were <laughs> Once or
0: twice. But I'm joined
1: today mm-hmm. um, by my lovely co-host, Kate, our yo, resident yo, yo. scientist. Tell us a bit about yourself
0: for those who this may be their first time listening. Because that, well, that, that, can ha- that
1: happens sometimes.
0: It does happen. Um, people do discover this podcast every now and again. Um, they would do more so if I put more effort into promoting it. But, you know, we're Uh, here. We'll get that one day. One day. One day we will. Future people from the future listening back to past episodes. G'day. Uh, my name's Cade, <laughs> as as wonderful Matt just, just said. And uh, unlike Matt, I am recording from lands traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people. So, you know, a good 4,000 kilometers away on the other side of the country, for those who are not aware that Matt and I do this podcast very, very remotely. And we have since, like, pre-COVID. <laughs> uh, we did it before it was cool, using... using remote <laughs> we just happen
1: to live in different states so yeah, yeah
0: yeah but you know we care enough uh collectively about science and the communication of that science to uh make it happen for for y'all so before we yeah.
1: uh go any further i will just say in the words of Katy perry west coast represent <laughs> <laughs>
0: look i mi- i miss I miss Perth too much to fight you on that. So you know, sure, West Coast represent. I'm not even like East Coast. Like I'm, I'm East, but I'm not East Coast. I'm like South Coast.
1: I mean, nor am I. Right? I'm Melbourne, in the fucking hills, right? so I can't even call South it Coast. coast but,
0: represent- yeah, actually, true. You're not even, you're not even in Perth. You're in anyway. anyway, 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 anyway. You asked me to to say a bit about myself, and I I didn't intend to just like turn it into a whole like rivalry about where in Australia is best. Um, because on top of that, I am, as you said, the Resident scientist of this podcast. I'm a neuroscientist, uh, specifically, which you know actually does become quite relevant for today's particular topic. Um, but you know, I love, I love also, I'm also a science enthusiast. I don't know. Every time you introduce yourself as a science enthusiast, I'm like, but same though. Like, that's um, all right. They
1: don't have to be mutually exclusive. We can both true, be true. science enthusiasts. It's we just, can. I don't have any other scientific credentials <laughs> other than science enthusiasts. Like I did physics in year 12, but yeah, I, I don't really I put that on my resume. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> Epic. Um, you did all of the sciences I didn't do.
0: I... I didn't even do biology in year 11 and 12, though. Like, that's the thing. And so now, like, one of my many jobs is, um, I, like, I work teaching, like, we get groups of, like, excursions of, like, sometimes, like, year 12 students coming through Mm. learning biology specifically, um... And I've, oh, I, like, my thing when I started this job, I was like, oh, my God, I didn't even do year 12 bio. I'm not qualified to be teaching M-posta. these people year 12 bio. Yeah, and then my friend pointed out to me, they were like, oh, Cade, you have a you, master's you, degree in biomedical science. Like, you are so qualified to be teaching year 12 bio. And I was like, but, I you're mean. You're overqualified. Okay, sure. Um, so, you know, psh, education some education. The point is, <laughs> this podcast exists because we want to make scientific knowledge available beyond just like, you know, degrees or education or whatever. So here we are. Um, Matt, I want to, I want to start this episode by, I don't look, this, this one can take a couple of different directions and like, at time of recording and saying these words, I don't know what we have decided to title this episode. So it's mm. it's going to be interesting actually for the listeners coming in. They probably have more of an idea of where this episode is going to go than either of us <laughs> do right do. at this moment, which
1: is quite fun. Well, that's for a bit me. cute.
0: Um, and
1: I'm going into this totally blind as well. I had no idea of what we were going to be talking about at all until we started this Zoom call. And you yeah, said, yeah, until oh, about like ten locate. minutes ago.
0: Um, <laughs> so I mean, look, we're not going to get too. Uh, personal, emotional, vulnerable, but like, I want to, I want to open it up and just be like, I want to talk about depression. Specifically, I want to talk about antidepressants. And there was Mm. this paper that came out a particularly controversial paper, uh, that came out July last year. So just over a year ago now, um, that I didn't actually make any science communication content about at the time. um, and and now i'm kind of like i th- i think it's important and you guys will see why i think it's important and this this episode's mm. almost going to be like a meta commentary also on like science communication and why like i think keeping the public uh accurately informed or like semi accurately informed right uh is super important but I mean, that's
1: fucking meta commentary that goes through our whole entire show. Yeah, I, I know. I we, say that as though this is like a novel idea, the subtext, that we're and completely like, overt text as well.
0: Text so. <laughs> more like dom text. Am I right? Aye. So I want to talk about uh, depression, though, and like okay, so before I kind of launch into any of the like controversy around it, I want to start with like the most simple kind of like what is depression like it's kind of this Mm. this whole i don't know matt we'll do we'll do the thing where i kind of like throw it to you and i'm just kind of if i said just like depression if you were to just give me like a one sentence sort of like definition like or what's your understanding of like depression like what what does that mean to you
1: the big sad the big sad yeah (laughs) it's like okay my understanding of depression Mm. Mm -hmm. anyone can feel depressed Mm -hmm. Feeling depressed can be described just as an emotion. Feeling sad, feeling down.
0: The emotion of depressed, yes.
1: Mentally healthy people. You probably wouldn't be mentally healthy if you did not feel depression. Yeah, it's one of the the,
0: like wheel Um, of emotions. Totally. totally. Yeah.
1: However, depression, in terms of like speaking as a clinical disorder, Mm -hmm. um, that's when you are the big sad. More or less all of the time or a majority of the mm-hmm. time, even when your circumstances, your life around you, whatever's going on, you. you I, I hesitate to word the, use the word shouldn't, but in situations where you shouldn't necessarily right, right. be feeling sad, mm. you are still feeling sad. Mm-hmm. And it is mm-hmm. to the point where it is causing anguish and disorder in your life where you cannot function yep. as a regular person in
0: society. Totally, totally. So yeah, pretty much, pretty much nailed it. Like depression, like feeling depressed as an emotion and the distinction between that and like any sort of like clinical level depression, like that is Mm. important to note. And like, see, this is the thing the kind of ambiguity around like clinical depression, um, I think is important. And I kind of wanted you to be a little bit uncertain around what that meant, because Mm. in terms of, I mean, I don't know how, like
1: physically what that means in terms of, Brain chemistry, how you can diagnose yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And what kind of symptoms can actually point to this is clinical depression rather mm. than you're yeah, just having a rough time at the moment. Yeah. That, so- I don't know that shit.
0: Generally, the way it is diagnosed um, is using something called the DSM or the DSM-5 is, is the most uh, current one of that, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, which is mm. essentially here is our cluster of symptoms. Let's chuck a label on it. And the reason I've kind of just called it depression vaguely, it's it's not just vaguely called depression in the DSM. You have what's called major depressive disorder. Um, Mm -hmm. where you have to meet a bunch of symptoms. Um, So essentially it's for the same – so it's major depressive disorder if you meet enough of these criteria for the same two-week period. Um, And then it's Mm -hmm. called like persistent depressive disorder if it's for like – I think it's like six months or more. And there's essentially different time points diagnosing sort of different things. But the sort of the symptoms are – the way it works is you have to meet five uh, or more – of of these particular symptoms, which is depressed mood, so you know, kind of feeling sad, empty, hopeless, etc. Um, mm-hmm. you need to so loss of interest slash pleasure. Um, and then you've got ones that are like weight loss or gain. Insomnia okay. or hypersomnia, which means so like losing or gaining weight, sleeping too much or too little. Um, so the psychomotor, extreme on either end kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. So you've got psychomotor agitation or retardation. So same thing, kind of being very restless mm. or very slow. Uh, and then you've got fatigue, feeling worthless, uh, decreased concentration, and then thoughts of suicide. So of those, what is that, nine criteria, you need to meet five. And then okay. on top of that, you must have f- all four of these particular uh, criteria, which is, That your symptoms cause clinical significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning, which is to say it it fucks up your life. Um, So you can be feeling sad as all heck and and function totally, totally fine, and you don't meet clinical depression uh, criteria like a, interesting a, you have to it has to be ruled as fucking up your life which like similar so i'm specifically if you if you haven't listened to the show before i'm an addiction neuroscientist and i look at alcohol addiction uh specifically and that's that's similarly with addiction one of the criteria is that it has to sort of disrupt your ability to function to be classes in addiction i have I
1: think it's thoughts very interesting oh uh, I, I, I have. i, I thoughts won't and criticisms cut off your flow on, on
0: um. all of this, this all, all of <laughs> All of this, uh, and we don't have time for that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna move on. That's alright. Um, so in order to also be uh, diagnosed as depression, or sorry, major depressive disorder, it has to not be attributable to the effects of a substance or another medical condition. So you can't just be drunk all the time and be like, oh, but it's depression. Um, yeah. And also, the episode not better be explained by schizophrenia schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, etc., cetera, um, or mm-hmm. no history of manic or hypomanic episode. Um, so essentially we need to make sure that nothing else is causing this and it has to mm-hmm. be fucking up your life and you have to meet then five of these other nine criteria and we're going to call it major depressive disorder if that lasts for more than two weeks and then persistent depressive disorder if it lasts for okay. a significantly extended period of time. Um, yeah. Which I'm is kind of, I don't know, I, I go into all of that and I point all of that out because I feel like at that point it becomes sort of clear to me, but I don't know how clear it becomes to other people. Um, but it's definitely sort of clear to the scientific community or the ones researching depression that depression is not like just one kind of like disease, right? Like it's not just like a, it, it it is a collection of symptoms and a collection of, you know, experiences Mm. that can be caused by
1: so say if we were to like compare and contrast that with um COVID-19 right yes COVID-19 is like a virus Mm. a thing that we can pinpoint Mm -hmm. that gets into your body Mm -hmm. and then from that being in your body yeah causes causes these symptoms whereas depression there's not some like depression virus or specific depression thing that happens and causes those symptoms it's more Mm. working the other way around you're looking at those symptoms Mm. and seeing that there's been a broad trend amongst people throughout Mm. history that have displayed these categories of symptoms and we can be like all right let's put that in a bubble and we'll call it depression
0: exactly um yeah which is kind of you know I feel like this is a thing that is quite, you know, commonly sort of accepted and known within the scientific community particularly, but as you'll hear over the whole course of this episode, there is so much misinformation and mismessaging around depression in particular. Like I was kind of I don't know, I as I was going through sort of researching stuff for this episode, I was remembering that like honestly, even th- up until I did my undergrad degree, I totally believed all of these things about depression and the disease and how it worked and how it functioned. And like, you know, it was only through Mm. doing my university study that I kind of realized that the scientific community is actually like not necessarily on board with the general messaging around depression and it all kind of made sense. And then I, I forgot about it and it's kind of only just researching. And I was like, actually, yeah, no, you're right. Like a lot of the, I don't know. I really liked the, um, Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the rest of it until mm. I kind of go into it. What but, you I'm know, um,
1: really curious to see mm. is like I know normally my role on the show is to act as the foil, so to speak, to be the stand-in for the listener and what mm. a general population might the understand Watson. about something. But mm. I'd like to think that I'm relatively woke as the kids would say I have a fairly good grasp on mental health and things so what I'm curious to know is as a more informed person around the whole issues of mental health whether how many of these misconceptions Mm. I still understand and believe all right
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna right now I'm gonna say if I was to ask you Matt to just sort of summarize uh I won't I won't limit how much it takes you but like do you think you know kind of like what causes depression or what the kind of like, you know, like w- if I was to ask you like scientifically, what causes depression? Like what is your answer?
1: I would say a what mix science of currently think? nature and nurture. To put yes. it Well, totally. I try totally. and put it simply, right? So mm. in terms of nurture, you've got all sorts of environmental factors that could be stuff like, um, uh, stuff that happens to you in life, various traumatic events. Mm. Um, of, I think, traumatic events kind of covers a broad list of things of shit going or wrong in your life and making yeah. you feel sad, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then in, and then you could also, in terms of the nature thing, there could be elements that are hereditary, meaning more. Pe- some you you could be more predisposed mm-hmm. to having depressive symptoms if you have a family history of it Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it could also be stuff that goes on in your brain like maybe various forms of physical trauma be it like I, I don't know if this actually causes it, but like, mm. I don't know, maybe if the mother is drinking while you're in the womb, that kind of thing doing mm, damage mm, to your mm-hmm. brain as you're developing or drinking when you're a kid. I, I don't mean just drinking, but you could even just mm. like bump your head or something. Oh, so totally, totally. It could brain mess up Traumatic the physical. brain injury
0: is like a, mm. a huge, uh, actually, and like mm. very underrepresented and under-researched and under-explored uh, known cause of, mm. of depression. Um, so
1: long story short, it's a mix of... Of yeah, all yeah. of these things together that doesn't necessarily have to be all one, or the other. You could have mm-hmm. none of one, none of the other. You could just have a perfect storm of everything yeah. that fucks up your brain chemistry in some way that I don't know. I've yeah. heard people talking about chemical imbalances, but I don't fully understand that. Um, yeah. So that I'm going to, I'm going to stop you. Depression. I'm going to, I'm going
0: to latch onto that because like you mm. have, you have given a very, very good answer and like a very like actually accurate summary of the fact that like, Ultimately, to mm-hmm. summarise most simplistically, we don't fucking know. Like, mm-hmm. we we do not fucking know what causes depression, like, whatsoever. Um, and it is absolutely most likely, well, like definitely some sort of interplay mm. of nature, nurture, like environmental, social, genetic, mm. like you could have a genetic predisposition and a whole bunch of kind of risk genes have come up in studies, but we have, there's no kind of like one, oh, if you have this particular mutation, you're going to have depression. That's the sad um, gene. That's and the you've sad got a gene. a lot of it, kiddo. Yeah, no, it's like, it's nothing like that, but you, you can definitely have a genetic predisposition, predisposition and we know that like if you have like parents or siblings that have depression you are more likely to uh, have it, but those can be triggered by life events, you know, traumatic things, whether they be physical trauma or emotional trauma, all of that very, very much. That's kind of where we're sitting at the moment. But then, mm. yes, the bit that, that I think is the most pervasive sort of quote unquote myth is this whole like chemical imbalance thing. And this is where I was going to say I like oh, I nice. fully bought into and believed and loved this. Like I remember one of uh, a housemate from like a decade ago, um, getting, like, a, a, a poster thing that was, like, if you can't make your own neurotransmitters, store-bought is fine. And that being, like, a <laughs> empowering, <laughs> like, so yeah, we're on antidepressants and that's okay. And, like, totally, totally love the messaging. Totally, totally love the, like, the normalization of taking antidepressants if you need to um mm. but this kind of idea this chemical imbalance in particular serotonin i was kind of hoping you'd say mm. something about serotonin and you didn't serotonin like, is well. one that
1: ha- i've i have heard come up mm. um a lot about yeah depression. what have you what serotonin, have you heard anything i mean serotonin is the happy chemical um so when mm-hmm. you've got lots of serotonin you feel good when you don't have much Serotonin, you feel bad. So if you're taking any sort of like amphetamines, whether it's recreationally, I mean, amphetamines um, is
0: more dopamine than serotonin. Oh, that's Um, okay. Psychedelics. I thought it was psychedelics. Is is serotonin? Um, serotonin is complicated, but the sort of the sort of the myth around it. I mean, it's definitely definitely Mm. related to mood but the the kind of idea um and as I'll go to kind of in this review like it comes mm. from like how antidepressants work is we know that antidepressants work via serotonin or at least mm. antidepressants affect serotonin and so the general the general kind of like and apparently i i read something that said 80% or they did a survey like 80% of the public sort of believe this idea that having too low serotonin is what causes depression or there is this like yeah, something to do I've with you. i definitely heard that. Yeah. Or,
1: like you're not producing enough serotonin. Yep. Um, yep. Like, so you're taking the antidepressants to mm. give you serotonin and boost you up and make you, mm. make mm-hmm. you feel good. Um, yes. I, I've definitely heard that thrown yes. around. Um, totally.
0: So that, and I like that, is apparently the kind of most common understanding mm. belief, et cetera, of depression. I don't know. Like I'm actually, I'm very heartened and enthused by the fact that that wasn't your immediate go-to, <laughs> uh, when I asked about this, because the thing is this is it's like, it's totally a misconception, but like the thing is it's like scientists have always known that this was like an oversimplification and, like, this is a theory and, a, right. and an idea that, we like, we've moved a long way on from. But, yeah, apparently... It's like, still it's,
1: quite per- pervasive. Maybe just because it's, totally, it's totally. very simple to understand and simple to yeah. explain. If someone can't really fully understand the scientific rhetoric, you tell them, well, there's yeah. a chemical in your brain that makes you happy. You don't have enough of it. Yeah. This gives you enough of it. Now and you feel like, happy. Like, honestly, I, get yeah.
0: I don't, Honestly, uh, I don't want to, like... See, this is the thing, I, like, I feel hesitant to, quote, unquote, crush that um, as I feel like a lot of people or, you know, a lot of medical people, like, and people in this field have because there is also research and there have been studies to show that um, this idea, like, it helps destigmatize but it, and it helps remove self-blame. And so it actually, yeah. like, this idea helps people actually see realize that it's something engage with out of their control, better. so
1: to speak. Yeah, totally.
0: Um, but like, this is the thing I'm going to go into like how, how and why this is totally a misconception. Uh, but I hope like at the end of it, anyone who is suffering from depression or who has suffered from depression, like comes out of this whole episode, still believing that their depression is not their fault and mm. has a biological basis because, mm, babe, all your, everything has a biological basis. Our brains are biological, our thoughts are everything. It's, it's all biological. Uh, this kind of like body mind, I don't know, as a like, you know, mental illness neuroscientist, I spend a lot of time being like, why do we have this idea of like mental physical separation when it's just, it's totally not like your mental is physical, dude. Like it's all, uh, Mm. body. Um, but like, yeah, it's anyway, I, I, if I try to come at it from this angle, it doesn't make sense. So what I want to do is I want to talk about what made me want to talk about this, which was this fucking, this review that came out July, 2022. I'll link it in the description. Um, and the, like, it, it's a paper called the serotonin theory of depression, a systematic umbrella review of the evidence. Um, and essentially, okay. so this paper essentially concludes. Is this and like, like a
1: like, scientific paper? Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A it was published, uh, published reviewed, by, good shit. yep,
0: yep by uh people scientists from the university college london which is a very very big and well-renowned U- like this was a and it was published in a like in bmj uh, like it's a pretty prominent uh journal um it has since copped a lot of like what i'm going to call counter publishing which is a lot of like uh expert opinion criticisms being published in response um Mm. And I'll go into that, but yes, this is, this is a legitimate, I'll go, I'll go into a lot of the reasons why we, we necessarily, there are questions about this particular paper, but Mm. yes, totally, if you didn't know anything else about the context of any of this, and you were just reading this out of the blue. You would fully... There is no reason it's to question like any of It's not like some this.
1: article on WikiHow or no, something like no, that. Th- that these is... are
0: prominent scientists that have very mm-hmm. strong opinions and keep trying to publish stuff about it. And I'll go into maybe why a little bit later. But, yes, uh, this okay. is a fully legitimate uh, umbrella review. And an umbrella review... It's, it's essentially, it's what's called a meta-analysis. And so that's where they, they don't have like one-on-one like patients that they're testing stuff with. What they've done is they've gone on and they've found a bunch of studies, like a whole, whole heap of studies that have looked into this and they've done an analysis of what's called a meta-analysis, like an analysis of the analysis. So you take a whole bunch of papers and you do this like systematic review, um, Though how systematic has kind of of come into question later. But, yes, you've taken a whole bunch of other people's studies that, like, a whole bunch of clinical trials looking at antidepressants is essentially what they've looked at, um, antidepressants and how they affect different serotonin things. And so this is a quote pretty much uh, straight from the abstract. Like, you don't even have to go with the abstract of the paper, which is they've concluded... That mm-hmm. the main areas of serotonin research provide no consistent evidence of there being an association between serotonin and depression, and no support for the hypothesis that depression is caused by lowered serotonin activity or concentrations. Um, so this
1: paper is basically saying serotonin has got nothing to do with depression. Yeah,
0: They've looked at like, okay. there were a bunch of studies that looked at like plasma levels of serotonin and like brain levels of serotonin. And they've kind of looked at all of this and they've gone, look, I've looked at all of this, this stuff, all of these clinical trials that looked at different ways to measure serotonin levels after taking antidepressants. And I've concluded that like overall there is like zero evidence of there being an association between serotonin and depression, which like... right. Fine, valid findings, honestly, like valid, mm -hmm. totally valid findings. But the thing is, this isn't actually really adding much groundbreaking knowledge to the field, right? It's not a problem for them to say, but it's kind of like, okay, old, old news. The problem comes that they then they take that and what they do is they use this to call into question the basis for the use of antidepressants as a treatment. So they go, right. okay, so there's no link between serotonin and depression. So why are we using antidepressants that work on serotonin? Now, this this is batshit, right? I'm gonna go into I'm gonna explain mm. why this is batshit, right? It's silly. I, can
1: I guess? But it's also is just it really bad. Please. Antidepressants have been proven to work effectively.
0: Yeah, right? I mean it's kind can- of a chicken and an egg thing in that like what came first. The thing is, our theory of serotonin and depression came from us finding medications that worked mm. via serotonin that helped depression, right? Right. So That's we just the took the that way and around we're like, well, yeah, yeah, adding yeah.
1: serotonin mm. or allowing the brain to produce, but well, I don't know how antidepressants work. Yeah, I'll, work I'll, really, I'll go
0: into it. So... Essentially, I the, I want to – I have a list of headlines here, like the media. The <laughs> thing that makes me really pissed off about this study, like if this study was published yeah. on fucking wiki, whatever, and no one ever read it, whatever. They can have their fucking cooked opinions and they can publish it. Sure. The thing is, that's not what happened. As you said, it got mm. published somewhere legitimate. And so the media – This is where it comes Mm. into this whole, like, my whole thing about science communication, right? Because the media latched on. And these are all real headlines that I'm going to read you right now that came as a result of the publishing of this paper. So we have, Mm -hmm. depression and chemical imbalance. Big Pharma profits from theory scientists say doesn't exist. That's Uh, a real headline. Love to go after Big Pharma. Yep. Will there be justice for millions of Americans prescribed antidepressants for a chemical imbalance of the brain that doesn't exist? Will there be justice? I don't know. Will there be justice for people that have been helped? We'll never know. Um, (laughs) Scientists question widespread use of antidepressants after survey on serotonin. Everything we thought we knew about depression is wrong. A decisive blow yeah. to the serotonin hypothesis of depression. <laughs> so, like, the thing is, so most of the like headlines and articles are making this like huge deal about how this was like suddenly new information that shattered what neuroscientists mm. and psychiatrists thought we knew about depression. Which is just like, it's fucking, it's it's that's not the case at all. Like this so-called theory, like chemical imbalance, mm. chemical imbalance theory, or serotonin hypothesis. Um, like, it's literally been well-known by the field to be an inaccurate and inadequate explanation of depression, like, pr- like literally pretty much from the start. It was never actually a legitimate sort of scientific hypothesis mm. waiting to be proven and disproven. Like, it was an op- for simplification at best. And, like, we knew that. And so, like, look, I'm going to... Before I get into the science of it, I'm just going to, I'm mm. just going to rant a little longer because like it honestly, it really pisses me off because using that to call into question the use of serotonergic agents to treat depression is, mm. yeah, it's like, it, like I said before, it's ridiculous because yeah. that's what led us to developing this theory, but it's also, it's so dangerous, right? For the media to just yeah. run with this approach because it could cause people to stop trusting their doctors Or just stop Mm. taking their medication all of a fucking sudden. Which, like, withdrawals from, like, antidepressants, SSRIs, like, can be awful. Awful, awful. And so, like, I don't know. It just, it speaks to the importance of science communication.
1: fucking, the media has jumped on to this bandwagon of whatever shitty conclusion this paper drew mm. because it counteracted what a misinformed public opinion was and didn't actually reflect what the scientific consensus yeah. was because yeah. there wasn't enough information to the public about what the actual right? scientific consensus exactly. was. So, exactly, exactly. And the media, especially at the moment, I mean, probably for always, though, has always loved fear-mongering has always loved a snappy headline like that and especially i think maybe coming out of covid as well as mm, what, 2022 oh, yeah there's already right. an era where a lot of people are really mistrusting of the pharma- ph- ugh, pharmaceutical industry and doctors and stuff so it's it's an easy headline for yeah yeah yeah, yeah totally disgusting but but also
0: the whole kind of (laughs) antidepressants as a debate has been latched on to over and over again Mm. i think it was like 2008 there was like this big sort of review that was published kind of showing that antidepressants were no more effective than placebo and it's kind of like you kind of go into that and you you look at the criteria that was used and it kind of it's it's this whole kind of thing that also got you know, more or less debunked, um, Mm because of how we, you know, but it's, it's something that we like to keep latching onto and you have kind of prominent YouTubers, um, release being like, Oh, but it's, it's big pharma, Mm. you know, of course, big pharma told us that about this chemical imbalance theory it's because they wanted to sell us drugs. And the problem, the problem with that is that a lot of the reason I think particularly in America, less so here, because we don't Mm. have this weird shit in Australia. I didn't realize, but in America they like advertise drugs like, it's yeah. like this whole commercial thing, right? They have on TV. Um, and so things like Prozac and, you know, antidepressants, they put out ads pretty much mm. using this chemical imbalance theory to justify themselves. Uh, um, yeah. And so it's kind of it, – Big Pharma, in a, in essence, has fed this myth. But also, like, it, mm. you know, in the absence of – anyway – I I don't want to get too philosophical. I I feel like we we could spend a whole episode getting philosophical. um, Um, Or
1: not even philosophical. We could even go down a deep rabbit hole of getting political around Big Pharma and shit. No.
0: And I'll kind of touch back on it a little bit later. But what I want to do first, what I want to do Mm. is I want to just kind of explain a bit of the context behind this whole thing and, like, why it seemed so ridiculous to, I don't know, I remember when this review came out a year ago and, like, just people in the field, like, laughing at it and just being like, this is actually ridiculous that they're using this this messaging. Um, and I kind of, I don't know. Yes, it's ridiculous, but also, I don't know, like I said, it speaks to a a bigger problem of, of misinformed oh, I public just thought and thought an communication, but yes.
1: I thought of an analogy. Let me know if you reckon that this analogy works, right? Mm. So... Groundbreaking scientific study is released Mm. saying, guess what, everyone? The earth is actually round, Mm. right? The earth is actually Mm -hmm. round. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. therefore, if you're buying maps you're propagating the idea of the flat earthers big map has been trying to sell us on flat earth for such a long time stop Mm -hmm. buying maps only buy globes okay Mm -hmm. what are you doing buying maps none Mm -hmm. of this 2d world shit the world is flat and then headlines coming out being like flat earth theory debunked you know yeah totally
0: totally like that's a great analogy except i would then go a step further to be like except in this case telling people to stop buying maps is is uh potentially life-threatening medical fuckery which makes it that's what really makes me angry about this. And that's this, what makes it is worse. The, 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 the distrust that this is going to cause and the – anyway. Um, so here I am to do my part, which is to set the record straight and kind of tell the story. I want to tell you a tale. I want I want to tell you the history of antidepressants. It sounds like a really Take fucking a boring journey. tale, but we're going to do it. So it all started back in the 1950s, right? So there were two new drugs. Neither Mm -hmm. of which were intended to treat depression at all um, that were just coincidentally found to be very effective antidepressants, as is the case with so many fucking things in medicine. Jesus Christ. We never find what we set out to find. Um, Yeah, wasn't
1: antihistamines first used as like a tranquilizer for horses or bulls or uh, something? And then we found it was useful for fucking... everything i don't know i could be making
0: that up look but (laughs) not gonna fact check that one but there are a lot of examples um so the first one there's a drug called iproniazid um which was intended to treat tuberculosis and it did actually in fact treat tuberculosis and so there was a, a trial in 1952 that found that iproniazid um, it not only tri- treated tuberculosis, but it also improved the moods of patients who had also been diagnosed with depression. So cool! Oh. This is this is interesting so far. Um, and then mm-hmm. in 1956, there was a Swiss trial that found a similar effect um, on mood and depression for a drug called imipramine. And so this drug was actually intended to treat allergic reactions, and is a drug that is actually mm-hmm. still used to treat allergic reactions. Um, and it was found, yeah, to improve the mood of people with depression. And so like, this was first of all, like incredibly sort of exciting at the time, because this was, this was actually sort of the first time anyone had considered something other than psychotherapy as being effective for depression. So we sort of had this idea of depression as a, as a, uh, problem, but we're like, oh, you just gotta, you just gotta talk it out, Freud. Freud. You know, uh, which Mm. this, me saying it like this psychotherapy is absolutely still a very effective treatment for depression and uh, not to be discounted at all. But it was sort of the first time people had clocked that there was maybe something physical or biological underpinning Mm. this because if we can drug it and the drug leads to improvements like holy shit like um and the interesting thing about these two drugs so ipronizid and imipramine is that they both affected a class of neurotransmitters called monoamines so monoamines so neurotransmitters I don't know. I'm a neuroscientist. I spend fucking every day thinking about neurotransmitters. Um, But I don't know. People listening, if you're not familiar with the concept of neurotransmitters, they're essentially, they're the chemical messengers that our brain cells spit out at each other when they want to communicate and different ones, to different things. You've probably heard of the three main monoamines. We've got dopamine. We've got serotonin. No, that one.
1: Oh, I know that one.
0: Yeah. And we've got norepinephrine or noradrenaline, depending on which part of the world you belong to and what side of the adrenaline epinephrine debate you sit on. I'm not here to weigh in. <laughs> um, but
1: I'll take key players,
0: right? Norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin. We've heard of them. Um, Mm -hmm. and so these two drugs both work by increasing the availability of these chemicals in the brain. So, you know, one was (laughs) to treat tuberculosis, one was to treat allergic reactions, but they both affected these chemicals. So it was like, okay, so it was kind of the discovery of these drugs that first led to this chemical imbalance theory of depression, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, like, it makes sense, right? If, if these yeah. drugs change the balance of these chemicals in the brain and like that can quote, unquote, that implies quote, a previous an illness, imbalance. right? Yeah. yeah. It seems logical that some kind of like imbalance is the cause of th- of this illness. And then, yeah. like, moving on from there, there were several other drugs that were then discovered that also acted on monoamines and were effective at treating depression. And so you've kind of got your main classes that people may have heard of, uh, which, you know, these kind of first two, iproniazid and imipramine, and then kind of the first range of antidepressants was something called monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So monoamine oxidase is, it? it's an enzyme. It's the enzyme Sounds that breaks down. Sounds like a laundry detergent. Down. Yeah, right, because it cleans <laughs> up shit, right? It cleans up shit in your synapse. It totally does. Like, it, it's the enzyme that breaks down your monoamines. So your serotonin, your dopamine, whatever, gets spat into the synapse, into the gap between your nerve cells. Um, and once it's done its job, it's bound to its receptor, whatever, like, what happens then? It doesn't just hang out there forever. Like, it's either got to be reabsorbed, which some of it is, or broken down, which some of it is. And so there's an <laughs> enzyme that does this, like, chompy-chompy breakdown shit. And so these <laughs> drugs, these first kind of neuro uh, – sorry, first antidepressant drugs worked by inhibiting this enzyme and so stopping the breakdown of these neurotransmitters. So they'd get spat into your synapse and they would just hang out there for longer because they just wouldn't get broken down, right? Hmm. Um And then kind of the next class was something called tricyclic antidepressants, which they Mm -hmm. also kind of act to keep serotonin and norepinephrine within the synapse. Um, And like none of these drugs were very selective, right? They kind of all acted on a pretty wide and varied range of monoamines and receptors so acting on the whole bunch of different neurotransmitters the serotonin and the norepinephrine and the uh, dopamine and a whole bunch of different receptors so each of these like neurotransmitters has different subtypes of receptors with like they interact with but these drugs were kind of just a very big like sledgehammer like we're just going to fucking mm. increase it yeah um which like First of all, meant that we didn't really know why they were working. We're like, cool, they're working something to do with this, but like, they're just kind of casting out a big net
1: and it seemed to pick shit up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, But also, it meant that they came with a bunch of side effects like, a bunch. Um, Like, there's a bunch of serotonin receptors in your gut that does just completely different shit. Like, it's, you know. It, like, it was okay. It was, honestly, it was a hope. It was a light at the end of the tunnel that we hadn't seen before. It it mm. did amazing things for... It's a step in the
1: right direction. If yeah,
0: and, like, the messaging kind of around these things and kind of like we were talking about before around being, you know, kind of removing the self-blame Uh, for these sorts of illnesses as a result of these drugs becoming available and marketed, um, it led Mm. to a massive, massive, massive uptick of people seeking help for depression um, Mm. because people were no longer too scared or ashamed to talk about this stuff. Um, Yeah. But – It led to a huge... It would also make it more accessible
1: as well, yeah.
0: Yeah, like, prescription of these medications. And honestly, like, medication is cheaper than therapy. Um, And so... And
1: easier as well. I don't have to talk about my problems. I can just take a pill and then I'm Um, good. Fuck yeah, sign me up.
0: Which, like, look, there is something to be said about making treatments that are accessible. But the mm. the main kind of problem with these, especially these initial kind of drugs, the monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which... Honestly, some, some drugs that are still prescribed today do are a part of these classes, and this is not to say if you were prescribed one of these drugs that they're not the best. Um, if it's what works for you, it's mm. what works for you. Um, but, yeah, they came with a bunch of side effects. And so this led scientists uh, – essentially, they worked really, really hard to try and figure out which specific monoamine was causing the benefits um, and sort of mm. landed on serotonin mostly. Um, some – but, like – It's kind of like a serotonin but with a little asterisk it's like the majority of drugs seem to work via serotonin, but also not all of them and also not everyone and also not, you know, none of these things are. Classic
1: science with the hashtag um, it depends.
0: Yeah. And also just like classic depression as we started with at the start, not being one kind of homogenous disease that can just be cured by one thing. There's a lot of kind of variation, but the way the scientific field led, it was like, okay, serotonin is our main one we should focus on. And so that led to the development of, uh, the most common sort of class of antidepressants that most people, I think, are familiar with these days, which is SSRIs. So your selective serotonin mm. reuptake inhibitors is, is what that SSRIs. what that stands
1: for? Yes, selective
0: go. serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which, as the name suggests, it's selectively works on serotonin. So only serotonin, not your norepinephrine, because you can also have SNRIs, which are serotonin norepinephrine mm. reuptake inhibitors. Can you give us um, some
1: uh, good examples of some common SSRIs Prozac. that the audience may have heard of?
0: Prozac, any others? Lexapro. I I think, is actually the scientific Mm. name of Lexapro. Um, But, Mm. like, pretty much every common antidepressant, like, if you're on one, Mm. it's almost certainly going to be an SSRI. But, like, Prozac was the first sort of huge one that kind of came out. They were like, oh, selectively, um, and it worked by inhibiting the reuptake. So instead of, like, the monooxidase- uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors uh, that stopped the chomping up of the the antidepressant uh, – sorry, of the serotonin. This works differently. It stops the reuptake. So sometimes the nerve cell that spits out the serotonin, it also sucks a bunch of it mm. back up to, like, kind of reuse. And so this blocks those receptors so more of it hangs around in the sinus. So if
1: I'm getting this right, generally your brain will cycle with – shoot out some serotonin, clear it up, shoot it out, clear it up, and it'll cycle through that. And some drugs will give you an excess of serotonin. So when it goes to clear it all up, some's left behind, and some will stop the clearing up bit from clearing all of it up so it hangs around for longer. I mean, essentially,
0: they work different ways of clearing it up. So your your nerve cells or your neurons will spit out a bunch of serotonin into the gap, into the synapse, and there are sort of Mm -hmm. two different ways that it gets cleared up. And, like both happen at once. Like both of these things are happening. So you spit a bunch out into the synapse. It does its job. It binds to its like postsynaptic receptor, sends its message. And then it's like, cool, Mm. clock it out mates. Some of them decide to catch public transport home, which is to say Mm. the synapse that they, sorry, the cell that they got spat out from sucks them back up. And they're like, cool, pitying home out fellas. See you later. Some of them decide to just like, I don't know. They're done. They break down. I don't know. They get eaten. Um, they don't quite make it home. They decide to walk home and they get chomped up by the street cleaners. Uh, the monoxidase inhibitor enzyme. So it all kind of gets spat out. Half of it kind of gets sucked back up and half of it gets broken down. And that's how it clears out. So some of the drugs work by stopping the, the chompy boys and stopping the breakdown. And some of the drugs, the SSRIs work by stopping the public transport system. They stop the sucking back up, you know? Um, but all of it leads to the same sort of thing, which is mm. that there is more serotonin left in the synapse. And so, like, this this is what has led to this serotonin hypothesis of depression, which is mm. if increasing serotonin availability can alleviate the symptoms of depression, then it logically follows that there is a deficiency in serotonin that's causing the symptoms,
1: right? That's a fair conclusion to draw. I totally. would draw the same totally. with no other information. Yeah. I'm
0: going to give you some more information, though, that scientists have also <laughs> had from the start and is the reason why scientists have always known that the serotonin hypothesis has never been able to completely explain how or why SSRIs work to treat depression. So, All right, lay it on me. SSRIs increase serotonin within the synapse within a couple hours of taking them. But it mm-hmm. takes three to six weeks of constant daily use of these medications to have any effect on depression. It's not just instant happiness. There's no, time for stuff no, to build. Is it maybe
1: you need to build up a residual amount of serotonin in your brain? Would be my next Yeah,
0: so guess like based this is the, the thing. And hypothesis. this is the big fucking question mark that like honestly, to be like, we don't know. We don't, we don't we have no fucking idea why why antidepressants work, mm. right? We we pretty much know that they do. It's pretty much a consensus that they work for a lot of people. Mm.
1: The but proof is in the We don't the pudding.
0: know why. And so we had this idea, but like it has never been sufficient because we've always known that it takes a longer time to play out. So yeah, potentially Ooh. we need a build up. Potentially it's something to do with like other receptors compensating. So when there's like too much serotonin in that gap for a long period of time, does our brain make less receptors to make up for that? Um, the leading theory at the moment is actually neurogenesis. So that is like, new brain cells being born. Like this is a thing that we've, we've kind of, I say recently, relatively recently as a, as a field discovered that we continue to do throughout life. We knew it happened growing up during development, but we do neurogenesis happens throughout life within certain brain regions. And there are a couple of different reasons why this sort of neurogenesis theory is the leading one. So depressed brains have relatively consistently been found to have less gray matter in certain brain regions related to emotion processing and executive function. So like gray matter being the just less size. They're smaller. You've got, you've got shrinkage. You've got less brain in your prefrontal cortex, your amygdala, your hippocampus. So that's your memory, your emotions, your, Mm. uh, like, decision-making parts of your brain, right? Yeah. And one fMRI study study actually found that the more bouts of depression someone has, the smaller the hippocampus, like it's kind of a a relationship. We've also separately found that antidepressants increase something called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is essentially a chemical that leads to neurogenesis, a chemical that fuels brain growth, right? Yeah. And we've also found – Protein for the brain. Yeah, essentially. Um, And we've also, there are animal studies that have found that increased uh, growth and branching of hippocampal cells after antidepressants. So antidepressants don't necessarily just increase serotonin in the synapse. They potentially lead to this kind of like actual, like over long-term growth and connection and rewiring of the brain and new brain cells. And so that's sort of you know, and so, you know, we've talked a lot about antidepressants uh, this episode, and I want to flag that antidepressants, you know, are definitely not the only uh, treatment for depression or major depressive definitely. disorder. I mean, you've got your psychotherapy, but then also in terms of just quote unquote biological treatments, you've got things like TMS, which is your transcranial Mm. magnetic stimulation and ECT, electroconvulsive therapy that use, you know, uh, electricity or magnets to stimulate parts of the brain essentially. Mm. Um, and these most likely work by increasing neurogenesis. Like it it all kind of, you know, links in with this kind of neurogenesis theory of, not neurogenesis theory of depression. Neurogenesis theory of why depression treatments mm. work.
1: Um, I wonder if it's just the hippie in me coming through, but like, there's also something to be said for you know just the simple um, going outside, eating healthy, exercising. Exercise, which, ooh, which like known those to increase things,
0: neurogenesis, exercise and brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Totally. Like, there's the uh,
1: cruel feedback loop of depression that when you're really depressed. The last Mm -hmm. thing you want to do is get up and exercise. The last thing you want to do is eat healthy and cook for Uh yourself. The last thing you want to do is go outside. So it would make sense to me that if you're depressed a lot and you're losing those habits, thus leading to less neurogenesis would lead to that brain shrinkage. And then if you're able to reintroduce those Mm. habits into your life, that increases that so like that combined with psychotherapy which is not to say that it's fucking easy it's jesus fucking not
0: um but no studies in like Mm. um in in animals in like mice on little fucking treadmills on little uh what are they called like wheels like running wheels um exercise in in rodents has been shown Mm. to to treat depression or symptoms alleviate symptoms of depression like uh and also has been shown to increase neurogenesis like it's it's all kind of it's all kind of where that's where the field of like the neuroscience sort of understanding of depression is, is kind of currently at and in terms of like treatments of depression, which is, you know, why this review was so fucking ridiculous for them to like come out and make all these claims. And like, honestly, look, Mm. it, it probably isn't a coincidence that all of the most effective drugs, uh, for depression work on serotonin. Right. Mm. But like, that doesn't mean that serotonin deficiency is the cause of depression like
1: and then it just because serotonin deficiency may not be the cause of depression that then also doesn't mean that any drugs that use serotonin as the yeah, treatment factor right. are now invalid totally which totally the like that is that is the, that is took, the, which the next is wrong and misguided so, and dangerous
0: yeah and like the the kind of I don't know. Maybe easier to conceptualize. I've got two easier to conceptualize examples of this, mm. which is like if you look at things like panadol, paracetamol. Sorry, is the is the chemical mm. paracetamol for headaches? What, right,
1: Tylenol is the American equivalent. Tylenol,
0: um, I think. Look, it's paracetamol is Whatever. the active ingredient, yeah. right? And we take it for headaches. I d- I definitely do. Um, but that yeah, do. that doesn't mean that I think it's a low brain concentration of paracetamol causing my headache. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah. like steroid cream to treat allergic mm. reactions. Right. If you have like a, a rash mm. caused by like, mm. I don't know, poison Ivy or something. Right. We use mm. steroid cream to treat, but like that doesn't, the fact that Same that works, asthma, right. Like doesn't Ventolin mean that. Yeah. Yeah. Steroid deficiency are a steroid
1: as well. It doesn't mean, which doesn't mean steroid deficiency produce, is yeah. the cause
0: of those symptoms. Right. And there are a lot yes. of other things that we kind of, you know, understand that, to look, Just which because is to it's say, something that
1: our body produces naturally, I think maybe is the big thing that would be causing people to get mixed up by that. Because like we don't think like our body produces testosterone, which my remembering correctly, testosterone is a type of, I forget the definition a steroid. And yeah, androgen.
0: it's a steroid. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. But we don't necessarily correlate that in our heads. We're not like, oh, testosterone, that's a steroid. I'm not getting enough steroids in our body, but we can easily conceptualize, I'm not getting enough. Um, But in terms of like how a layman would think about it. But as a
0: serotonin, yeah. Well, and I mean, and I guess Mm. the other element as well, I think that helps uh, fuel it is... Like, there has been further evidence, quote-unquote, for this serotonin hypothesis in the form of genetic studies, which, I mean, genetic studies have found links between genes that code for, like, inflammation things and all sorts of shit that has been found to correlate with depression. But amongst all of these things, some of – genes that code for some of the serotonin receptors have been found to potentially be altered in people with depression. It's like, oh, so there's maybe – I don't know, something there. So it's just kind of like, uh, but, but also, yeah. you know, the genetic component is it's so much more complex than that. But yeah, absolutely. Like it's one of those things mm. that there were a few little shreds of evidence that make it kind of harder to in, not harder to engage with, I guess easier to engage with this idea. Mm. Um, but I guess the other thing, or I guess like the flip side or the other way to look at it is, Just because, yeah, we know that it helps doesn't mean it's the cause. Um, Mm. We don't know – at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we do not know why these medications help. We do know that they can be effective for a lot of people and there's been controversy around that, but we do know that. Um, But just because, like (sighs) – we don't know why. We don't know why. We've got no fucking clue. We've got no mm. clue whatsoever. But just because we uh, don't
1: know why doesn't, but that doesn't make it discredit no. the tangible effect. And totally. like there's years of evidence of them being mm-hmm. effective just from the people who have taken them and found them to help. Like, that's, and, that's the evidence,
0: right? And we don't know how or why general anesthesia or anesthetic works. Like, we, we don't really understand that. But you tend to still like agree with using it. If someone's like, oh, we're going to cut out because your Because I'm going to knock pain you out. And I don't
1: want to feel uh, sad. So I'll take but out But we don't know why, dude. We, like. we don't
0: know why this works. So maybe, like, I don't know. This is the thing, right? It's just it. the worst thing about this review and the subsequent media shitfuckery was this idea mm. that, like, what, like, the, this is what neuroscientists thought and that the results of this review has changed like in any way what we thought about the effectiveness of this medication and that like, maybe you should not mm. use. And like, look here is the, where I'm going to like get a little unscientific again, briefly right at the end is like, if you do some digging on the authors of this study, you will find that they have made like all of the books they've published, all of like, they've made most of mm. their money off criticizing psychiatric medication. Like they're just not just antidepressants, like any medication they're just like they they rip it to shit and they they do it like they do so to advocate for psychotherapy which like it's totally important and they do make some good Mm. points around like i don't think we should be treating we should just like anyone that's feeling like mildly depressed about some life event should be just like prescribed prozac Mm. absolutely it's it's probably something to be said about like over
1: Overdiagnosis and overprescription totally. being a problem. Yeah, like, and like the, I have something thoughts there.
0: about psychiatry as a field and and medication for everything. But
1: I think it's important to recognise the difference between like criticising the issues with um, like a field or a problem or something Mm. that's going on in the world, but going about it a right way. Yeah, Like
0: publishing misleading and inflammatory reviews is like, it's, it's feeding media hype that is like, it's not the best way to make these points because it's not Mm. actually going to end up helping the people that you want to help. If you think that there are people out there that have been prescribed this medication because they're depressed and you've gone out there and told them to, like, just not trust their medical team because they've been fed lies for decades. Mm. Like, that's not going to help this person. That's not going to make no. them, like, be honest with, like, you know, like, it's just, I don't know. It, just it's, it, it
1: feels to me they're, like, starting at the conclusion and trying to come up with evidence to totally they their are. existing Totally conclusion. they are. And they're creating a straw man and vilifying the wrong thing to go about that, which is ultimately more harmful than it is good. Even though they are coming from a scientific basis and a lot of what they're saying is factual and truthful, but they're just drawing a bad conclusion, which media is then picking up and blowing up and causing real life problems throughout society. In the,
0: in the notes for this episode, uh, I will have linked a bunch of like expert reaction, uh, sources for you to read, but like one in particular that's in front of me at the moment, um, we've got professor, Nudson from Professor of Neurobiology and Chair of Department of Neurology of Copenhagen University is like the authors justify the need for such a review by saying that it is a public misconception that depression is caused by low brain serotonin. Uh, the main misconception is, however, that depression is a single disease with a single biochemical deficit. Today it is largely accepted that, you know, depression is a heterogeneous disorder with potential multiple underlying causes. Um, and like, but like the start of that is absolutely the point. Like, the authors of this study justify the need for the review by claiming that like there's this massive public misconception around what depression is and how it happens and how it works. And it's, I don't know, it's good that you at least like mm-hmm. highlighted that not necessarily everyone thinks that, but if everyone does think that. That I just, it speaks to the need for better communication rather than. Mm-hmm inflammatory, like, I don't know. It just, look, the take home so message that I want to. good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But the mm. take home message I kind of want to leave people with around this whole thing is that medication has been found to be effective. Psychotherapy has been found to be effective. They've actually both been found to be most effective when used together. Um, But there are other treatment options available, like I mentioned TMS, ECT earlier in the thing, like, and increasingly more treatment options available, actually. This is, like, psilocybin-assisted therapy for the treatment of major depressive disorder or treatment-resistant depression has just, like, literally just been approved in Australia on the 1st of July this year. Um, The first country in the fucking world to approve this shit. Shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Didn't know that one. No, yeah.
0: So MDMA and psilocybin have both been rescheduled in Australia as drugs and been made, um, so MDMA-assisted therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder, which is some of my research looks into that. I'll do an episode about that one day soon. Um, And Mm -hmm. psilocybin-assisted therapy for treatment-resistant depression. And, yeah, Australia is the first place in the world to have done this, which is like fucking very exciting Hell and yeah. very cool Reference um that. and interestingly psilocybin so those of you who aren't aware are like what is psilocybin uh magic mushrooms if you've heard of those it's the active active ingredient in those psychedelic uh and it predominantly binds to serotonin receptors and potentially like we don't really <laughs> under. once again we don't understand why it mm. works uh or how it works but we do know that it works via serotonin so there's like serotonin like All of this is that serotonin is doing something. It must be, right? Like it must be. Mm. But we've known since the start that this kind of idea of like, oh, you just have not enough of it um, and that's what's making you depressed. Like Mm. we have known since the start that that is not a sufficient description. If anything, you could just think of it as how it gets there. Serotonin
1: is the bus it takes to work, but the bus is not responsible for what you complete at
0: work. I mean, look- if you are experiencing symptoms of depression, talk to a professional and trust your medical team. Like that is what I will say. Like, don't be afraid to try medication if it's what your doctor suggests for you. Um, but also don't discount the environmental or social factors in your life that may be contributing. Uh, don't, you know, this, yeah, just this dichotomy of biology and environment. Like it's just such a false one. Um, depression is not your fault either way, whether it's something in your environment that's caused it, something in your life, something in your brain, something in your genes, something in your chemicals, something fucking whatever. It's not, it's not your fault and it's awful. And there tell you what I switched to cargo available. pants and I feel way better. You switched to cargo pants and it cured your depression? Well, yeah, because I don't wear jeans anymore. So uh, can't be that. Uh, can't be your <laughs> jeans. Very funny. Uh, thank, um, you, thank you. Look, I, jokes, jokes are fun, but like, genuinely, this is a, I don't know, semi-serious point, not semi-serious, like, this is a serious point that I want to make, right, is that no matter what, like, we, ultimately, we, the royal we, neuroscientists, scientists, fucking whatever, don't know what causes depression, we don't know why it happens, we don't know why it's so fucking awful, and we don't know why certain treatments work. But it isn't your fault and there is help. And that, I don't know. That's kind of the message that I just want people to leave yeah. with. I just want to make sure I people haven't message. misconstrued anything that I've said to blame themselves for the symptoms uh, or lose I trust don't think in the across, help that exists. So, yeah.
1: so. No.
0: So that is all I have uh, as our, as our main topic uh, content for the episode. So regular listeners of the show will know that now what we tend to do at the end of the episode is throw across to a listener question. So if you find yourself with a listener question uh related to science of any kind, um you can email us curiosityrat at gmail.com. Send through your listener questions, and generally, generally, I will tackle them. Um Last last episode, actually, Matt tackled a, a listener question from me. Was kind of cheating, but you know, <laughs> uh, we got Matt. But Matt, you did such a fucking great job that I've decided to be an asshole and throw you another one this week. Um, because we did also get one emailed in that specifically did ask for sound guy Matt's opinion. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you did such a you did such a good job. Uh, <laughs> Making last me week actually
1: research that. I, I I'm to gonna make you do some Psycom again.
0: Totally. Yeah. Uh, and Matt um, is going to like ask an answer, uh, a, a listener question for us this week.
1: All right. So this one is from Nigel. I've had to paraphrase the question just a little bit because it was a little bit of a longer one. Um, but I've paraphrased it down to the nuts and bolts of the question that I will do my best to answer. Um, and that question is, um, I have a dog that likes to sing along when I play the trumpet. I've got some passive noise cancelling headphones for the dog, um, but he still
0: sings along. Look,
1: I I just want to interrupt you and
0: be like, Mm. my dog also sings along when I play the trumpet. (laughs) And I, Mm -hmm. there's a, there's a whole thing there that I just, I don't, I don't know what it is about the particular, the, uh, collection of frequencies that the the mm. trumpet likes to tickle i will say gets dogs i didn't
1: research that so i don't know why no it is that uh, the trumpet i didn't necessarily cause i to I, have I have looked guesses, into it before
0: and i don't think there is a conclusive answer so <laughs> um i just right. think it's interesting and cute and i just anyway sorry continue with your no, question no, that's
1: all good so Basically, um, gotten some passive noise cancelling headphones for the dog to put over his little ears to help reduce the sound the dog's hearing. But even with those headphones, um, like the the construction site ones, like
0: muffling, is that what you mean by passive noise cancelling? I'm going to jump
1: into a little bit later what the difference between passive noise cancelling and active noise cancelling is. Um, but for now, um, uh, I'm aware active noise cancelling technology doesn't work for high frequencies, but why is this? And is there any better active noise cancelling technology being developed that could help? Or is there another passive noise cancelling method that could be used to help? Um, So um, how I want to kind of want to unpack this is I want to start real simple with a little bit of sound 101 Mm -hmm. and start with what is sound very broad i know but (laughs) physically speaking what what actually physically tangibly is Sound. Wibbly wobblies um, of
0: air, right? That's my answer. Yeah. That's my scientific. Wibbly wobblies of
1: air is honestly a pretty good way of describing it, right? Because sound That's travels. That's how I conceptualize sound. a wave, right? Um, um but I mean, at, at least for me, when I was trying to think about like, oh, what travels as a wave that feels pretty abstract, what does that actually physically mean is going mm. on in the world around us when that happens? So If it travels in a wave, as sound does, it requires Mm. a medium to travel through. This is why you don't have sound in space, right? Because space is a vacuum. Yeah, right. Sound is generated by the actual movement of particles in the Mm. air, bumping into each other and vibrating and shit. So, but it doesn't just have to be air, right? Sound can can travel through air. Sound can travel through water. Sound can travel through wood. Jelly? Sound can travel through... Sure. Yeah. (laughs) It it just needs a medium to go through, right? Right. It's It's essentially um, vibrations of stuff um generating these waves and these waves these vibrations yeah well i mean i guess through. if
0: you if you think of a sports stadium because we all think of you know at the matildas we've all been watching sports lately uh, yeah. as a country we're frothing it um and you mexican wave right if yeah. you think of a sports stadium full of humans doing a mexican wave mm. but if it's like an empty stadium it's a pretty you fucking can't have sad a mexican, mexican wave, wave doesn't yeah, fucking you exist need you people need people there yeah Totally.
1: Like, you could even think of it like electricity, right? I mean, it can arc through the air, but more or less, you need wires for electricity to actually travel through mm. to get it from one spot to another. Sound yeah. is the same, right? Yeah. Um, and the density of the medium it's going through can affect how much the sound travels so for example right. when you're underwater sound travels way further because the medium is far more dense so mm. the sound can move through that way easier like you could hear yeah. someone this is why you can hear whales and shit and why sonar works and that yeah um, because it
0: travels yeah
1: yeah and why there's no sound in space so the less dense your medium is the yeah. less well sound yeah. can travel through that the more dense, yeah. the more well, to yeah. a point, as I'll get to, because obstructions are a thing. Um, but, yeah, that's that's basically what sound is. Now, what you need to know about sound and how it's measured, right, it's it's in a wave, a little squiggly line. Yeah. The ups and downs of that squiggly line, that's what we call amplitude. And that's yes. basically the volume of it. The higher the peaks and the lower the troughs, the louder yeah. the sound. That's yeah. measured in decibels. Yeah. Um, how close the wave is smushed together. So how frequently it goes up and down, yep. um, that is frequency or pitch. So the faster yeah, right. it moves or the shorter the wavelength, that yep. means higher the higher pitch, the, pitch, right? the higher yeah. the sound, the longer the wavelength, the further apart those peaks the and troughs lower. are from each other. Exactly. The lower the pitch, the lower the frequency. So that's what sound is, right? Yeah. Next thing I want to talk about is how do speakers and microphones work, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think that gives us a good understanding of like headphones and what's actually going on with them. So speakers yeah. or headphones yeah. have a thing on them called a diaphragm. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen like a stereotypical mm. subwoofer, right? Yeah, it's yeah, got that yeah. thing, that little disc oops, that bounces oops, up oops. and down. Yeah, That's the diaphragm of yeah. the speaker. And basically that vibrating is physically pushing the air in front of it.
0: Yeah, and that right. is
1: what is causing those vibrations in the air to emulate uh, whatever sound you're putting through sound. it, causing the sound to travel
0: got through it. the air. Yeah.
1: So same things going on in your headphones. You've got a little diaphragm in there that's vibrating, yeah. pushing, changing the pressure of the air, creating mm. sound waves, making you hear shit. Yeah. Microphones, or at least dynamic microphones, there's a few different types of microphones, but the simplest yeah. microphone um, is basically a speaker in reverse. It has a little diaphragm just like a speaker but rather than it having a motor behind it making that diaphragm vibrate Mm. whatever sound you put into it
0: that causes the diaphragm to vibrate my my throat vibrations is yes what i went to say you know what we've said it we've said it now um (laughs) kind of mm -hmm. just
1: like you know when you blow on a fan and it starts to spin around this will speak into it will vibrate up and down in yeah. the same way, at which will then do some other complex shit to trans to convert that into an electrical signal, and you know whatever. I yeah. won't go into the the science of the that. The rest be of it too long to talk Future about. Future episode. Point is, the way speakers and microphones work is through a diaphragm. Same but reverse. receiving sound or putting out.
0: Yeah, sound. cool.
1: Okay, so with headphones, right? You've got yeah. noise canceling. I was talking about. Um, Passive noise cancelling and active noise cancelling. Yes. So noise cancelling, right. Just basically means block out sound, right? Passive noise cancelling means there's nothing like, well, for want of a better word, actively going on to prevent that. The most simple form of passive noise cancelling you can do is just blocking your ears, right? Blocking your ears you are preventing sound from getting in. That is passive noise cancelling. Wearing earplugs, wearing standard earmuffs or headphones that aren't playing anything. That is, those are all forms of passive noise cancelling. Yeah. Um, and passive noise cancelling is pretty good when it comes to blocking out sort of higher frequencies and mid range Mm. frequencies, but it's not very good at blocking out low frequencies.
0: Have you ever found yourself
1: in a house and your neighbors are having a party and all you can hear is this really (laughs) (laughs)
0: muffled? Yeah,
1: totally. You know, just the low (laughs) rumble of the (laughs) bass. That's because the lower frequencies, which are physically longer wavelengths in the air, are actually able to make their way longer distances. They can go around walls. They can sneak their Mm. way underneath headphones and get through shit more easily, right? Cheeky. It's... Kind of the... We've talked about redshifting on this show before, right? Yes. And how when light gets further away, it redshifts the wavelengths. Yeah, longer. it stretches. It's basically so it, the same yeah, thing happening but with, with sound. sound. Longer wavelengths get around shit and through shit easier than shorter wavelengths oh, do. It's redshifting, but for sound. That yeah.
0: makes so much sense to me. Holy shit.
1: Yeah. Amazing. It's, it's the exact same thing happening. Incredible. Um, so that's where... Active noise cancelling comes in to try and fill this void. So, you know, a lot of people right. sitting on long haul flights and stuff, they'd have their headphones yeah. in, but they'd have I've to have it all the way up. I've got fancy active
0: noise cancelling mm. headphones, and I don't, I don't know how they work, I'll be honest. Um,
1: That's all right. That's what I'm here to tell yeah. you. Yeah. But active noise cancelling was basically made to stop those lower frequencies getting through that passive noise right. cancelling. just doesn't do as good of a job of preventing Yeah.
0: I so do the way it, like, active no- yeah, when I'm like in around machines that are like buzzing that are like mm. and just at that lower frequency that yeah,
1: airplanes, traffic noise, wind noise, low Operant hums, chambers active noise cancelling behavior
0: rooms, uh- <laughs> yeah, fucking yeah.
1: brilliant for mm. that kind of shit. Um, and the way it works is super super interesting. Um, Nigel already kind of knows how it works, but I just want to you know humor our listeners in how active noise cancelling works. Um, basically, there is another microphone sitting on the headphones that listens to the ambient noise that's going on around you.
0: Oh, really? It will then
1: take that noise and play it back into your ears. And it uses a very, very clever trick in sound called phase cancellation. Do you know much oh, about phase cancellation and destructive I mean- frequencies?
0: I, I can, I, I know what like phase means in terms of a wave and I know that sound is a wave and so I can make an assumption, um, that essentially, so, cause you know, we described waves as, as having a peak and a trough and being like up down. Right. And I know that the Mm. way that waves generally work is that if you flipped it, right. And every time there was a trough and you played that, I guess, at the same time as there was a peak, it would, like, cancel out, Uh right? And there would be nothing. So does it take, like, the recording of the outside world and essentially flip it and play it to you, like, in reverse so that it cancels out?
1: Yeah. Not quite in reverse, but just out of phase, Well, yeah, that's
0: out of phase. In reverse, as in, like, the troughs are where the peaks are. I didn't know how to describe that else.
1: Yeah. But
0: in order for that
1: to work, it needs to be fucking perfectly in line, like a completely 100%, 180 degree phase shift in order for that to work. If you don't fully understand the concept of phase shifting, it's a little bit difficult for me to explain in the small amount of time we've got, but just try and take my word for it. Basically it records outside noises, plays them into your ears, reverses the phase, and that effect is called destructive frequencies. They cancel each other out. And the reason that this works really well for low frequencies is because low frequencies are usually, one, they're longer. Mm. They're usually not so Mm -hmm. sporadic. They're easier Mm. to track because there's a lot of fancy technology that has to go on to do this. It has to, one, record the sound... Then also flip the phase around and then play it through your ear at exactly the at right the time. Right
0: time, yeah. At so the exact to have right time, predictive it has to be, ability as well. Like there has yeah, to be it has some to sort have of, a predictive
1: ability, yeah. right? So there's really fine tuning oh, sh- that goes on so with cool. that. So, um, going back to Nigel's question about what, why does um active noise cancelling maybe not work as well for those higher and mid frequencies is because of that physical nature of the waves. Shorter frequencies mm. vibrate more per second. So that's more that the microphone itself mm, in there has to, to vibrate.
0: properly, And then more
1: stuff for it to predict totally and then there's correct. also just like the physical time it takes for it to record that sound mm. process it and then play it and back flip out it. again well, and a lot of those lower frequent high, higher and mid-range frequencies tend to be a little bit more sporadic as well there could yeah, be sudden noises that's hard for it to account for like Um Um, there's just literally more information there that it has mm, to process as well mm -hmm. and then play back. So most mm, active noise cancellation tends to cap out at about one kilohertz, so to mm, speak. I'll mm -hmm. play a one kilohertz tone in post right now so audience kind of get a vibe of where that kind of frequency. I'm intrigued. So I've gone on a little bit of a rant there talking about what sound is, how do headphones mm, work, how do mm-hmm. noise-cancelling headphones work. I have learned so much just and... from this
0: listener question. It's amazing. <laughs> the,
1: the the question ultimately was, um, he's playing the trumpet, the dog is still hearing it. Mm-hmm. Um, active noise-cancelling wouldn't work for the trumpet for the reasons that I just stated. Yeah. first part of the question was, are there any active noise cancellation things in development that might help with this in the future? Um, they're working on it, but (laughs) there's a lot of like, just literally physical limitations of again, how it has to, as I was saying, mm. there's time, physical time that is taken yeah, for yeah, the outside yeah. sound to be recorded, processed, and then played back like mechanically at the exact right limited. phrase thing going on. There's computational yeah. limits about yeah. what it can actually process. So we're, we're kind of at the whims of we're at our technological limit mm. here at the moment. I can definitely foresee that being a thing in mm. the future, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't see it for quite a number of years. We're not, we're not there yet. Um, this might be something the other that part you're of-
0: not equipped to answer even remotely and that's fine. Um, but I'm just, I'm thinking about the whole, just like predict, you know, one of the limiting factors being like the predictability Mm. of these, these higher noises with, with Mm. AI going the way that it's going. Yeah. Do you think that would come into it at all? I feel like AI.
1: Well, AI as it is in terms of Enhances predictability like a lot of the time. ChatGBT and Dolly and all of those ones that are really hot and cool mm. and so hot right now. Um, so hot right now. You know, yeah. aren't necessarily true AIs, but just like really, really good predictive yeah. algorithms where right. they take a lot of things and spew them back out. Um, yeah. In a way, I think current noise cancelling technology already uses similar stuff to this. Okay, like, There is a... um. A noise filter that I use when editing this show. Yeah. That's called D Noise, where basically I pick a part of the recording that is total silence. I slap this filter on it. I press mm. a button that says learn and mm. it just listens uh, to that. And yeah. then I save that as the thing and then play that over the course of the whole thing. And basically yeah. it's picked a noise profile from yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And then it's using that predictively throughout the entire track to cut out anything background. that is within those get, yeah get, to get rid of those low hums and yeah like electrical noises and stuff yeah. that just naturally yeah, yeah, come yeah. through so it's already in the technology cool. and that technology is only getting more advanced yeah so that's why i do see that being possible in mm. the future but we are at the limits of what our current computational and mechanical abilities will Rude, allow us at this moment <laughs> um honestly Um, the other part of the question, um, was, are there any other passive noise cancelling methods or materials or technologies that could improve this situation? Um, I don't necessarily know about dogs specifically and what Mm. you could use for that, but at least in people, like a combination of using in-ear earplugs as well as over-ear earmuffs, um, if you... It's technically a form of active noise cancellation, but even just playing some white noise mm. as well can help, you know, because white noise is just literally all of the frequencies played at once. It's yeah. the sound equivalent so of it, white. Yeah. So it's guaranteed light, to
0: cancel something, right? Uh. A guaranteed
1: to cancel something or even just playing some soft music drowns shit out, technically another form of active noise cancellation far less advanced. Yeah. Um Even stuff as simple as going into a different room, going into a different building. Mm -hmm. And like, even if you got the tightest possible seal on your ear canals and sealed them Mm. shut. So absolutely no sound was getting through. Mm. Even with all of that sound is still going to get through because Mm. of a little something called bone conductivity.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have bone conducting headphones, Mm. which is a whole other question that I'm not going to, take time Mm, going into now, but I specifically, one of the headphones that I like to use are ones that I can then wear my earplugs, like when I'm on the tram and I want to plug my ears with some passive, you know, noise cancelling Mm. earplugs, I can still hear my music because of these bone conducting headphones. It's very cool. It feels like a very modular system and I enjoy it, but, uh... Yeah, it's a whole other thing.
1: <laughs> do, do do you know much about the biology of bone conductivity when it comes to hearing? Um, I'll give like a brief synopsis of it. I mean, you a little know bit, the biology but yeah, better than I do. No, you go. My my understanding of it from my limited research is basically, you know. As I said, sound requires a medium to travel through. It doesn't just have to be air, could be water, could be wood. It can also be bone. So our skulls themselves can pick up on these vibrations. Mm. They can travel through and still get picked up by well, the yeah. eardrum and the cochlea. Where and- our cochlea,
0: like our, mm. our cochlea... Is is just a vibration meso- measurer, right? Like it's it's a it's a mm. long thing that different parts of it vibrate depending on what frequency of of air wibbly wobbly hits it. Um, mm. <clears throat> but it's not just the air, like. The air doesn't hit the cochlea, the air hits the eardrum, which then vibrates a bunch against your ossicles, Mm. which are your tiny little bones in your ear. And it's bone vibration Mm. that eventually leads to it anyway. Right. And so you can get that bone vibration via having air hit your eardrum, or Mm. you can get that bone vibration more directly by vibrating the bones. Right. Mm. Like it's, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's why no matter how much you seal your ears up with all of the active and passive noise cancelling technology in the world, if you're in a room with a trumpet playing, some of those vibrations mm. are going to get absorbed by your skeleton yeah. and by your skull. Yeah, So true. sound is true, always true. going to get through unless you put a bag on your head, which I wouldn't recommend doing for your dog. Yeah. That seems inhumane. Um, absolutely. Um, So, unfortunately, I don't have the solution for you, but I hope maybe that gives you a broader understanding of how- I learned so much,
0: even if no one else can Canceling
1: technology works and why there are some limitations to it. Awesome.
0: That was a very thorough and wonderful uh, listener question answer. I'm going to rope you in some more listener questions now. please, <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, if you have listener questions, uh, once again, curiosityrat at gmail.com is where you can send those. Uh, if you have sound specific ones, shoot them through. We have sound guy here. <laughs> sound or tree questions. I know some things. Uh, shoot them to Matt. Sound and tree Anything trees, else, baby. I'll, I'll fucking I'll tackle it. It's fine. Anything you got. But sound Next and tree Next week, I'll be tackling send them the through. answer
1: if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Because oh, that seems up my al- <laughs>
0: fucking, someone please I email that, that in That's because
1: we will. Philosophical one.
0: No, I, I have, no, I, I have thoughts, uh, but we won't, we won't, we won't. We won't, um, we we're, were, yeah. A future episode, perhaps. Um, anyway, I think, I think we, we are well and truly, it is time for us to wrap this one up. So once again, Thank you, listeners, for listening. Shoot us emails, curiosityrat at gmail.com. If you do not follow us on social media already, what the fuck are you doing? Um, but also, <laughs> fair enough, I don't. we don't really post uh, all that much. I try to. There are some cute pictures. We took a couple of cute screenshots of our Zoom recording of this uh, call. It'll definitely be up there. But Curiosity Rat um, is our handle on Instagram. Yes. We're on Facebook. If you have money, we don't. Give us money? No. Um, look, if you if you have money and you just don't know what to uh-huh. do with it, and you love the content that we make, uh, we do have a Patreon. You can find us Curiosity Rat on on Patreon. But once it, like totally, totally not important. It is a very, you know, as you probably gathered from this episode, fundamentally important thing to us that science communication uh, happens and that scientific information such as this is just like freely and publicly available to anyone who wants access to it. So feel no pressure. But if you have money, shoot it our way. And with that, I don't know. Is there anything else that we need to say to wrap up this episode? I don't Matt? think so.
1: Patreon, socials. Um,
0: boom, boom, boom. Speak to a professional. Speak to a um, pro- Yeah. If if you're depressed, help out there. my guy, same. But there is help out there, and uh-huh. we'll get through this. We'll get. We'll be okay. Um, and with that,
1: else, just talk to a mate. We'll go
0: outside. <laughs> Hug a tree. Eat good. Yeah. But also a- be kind to yourself. Actually, that's that's the number one thing that I'm gonna say is just be kind to yourself. Have some compassion. Yeah. If if none of that bullshit's working, gardening ain't curing your depression. Like, just just <laughs> be kind to yourself about that. It's rough yeah. out here. It's rough out here, folks. It is. So with that, we'll catch you next month. Peace out, homies.
1: <laughs> Kill-, Kill
0: the rat. Kill
1: the rat.